Hello and welcome back to Sabbath School from Home, a podcast where we are looking through the book of Ephesians this season. And we're up to the passage in chapter 5 that is titled Wives and Husbands. Now, this evening as we record, uh, my kids are actually out with grandparents. And so we're going to do something a bit of fun, a bit fun and unusual here. Um, I'm Lachlan and I'm looking forward to this and I'm joined by... Me, Clancy. Who is my wife. And you've heard Clancy on previous episodes, but I think this might be the first episode that's featured Clancy and I together. Because normally we, we can only have one of us go off to do the recording session. So this is going to be interesting and, and on this episode it's going to be just the two of us. So we're looking at this passage uh, in a, the second half, essentially, of Ephesians 5. Those of you that have been listening along will know that we are systematically reading through the entire book of Ephesians as we progress through this season. So you may recall that Ken preempted this section, led us a little bit into this section as, as he wrapped up some thoughts in our last episode. So why don't we get in and just read? We're reading from verse 21 down to the end of the chapter, verse 33. Why don't I read? And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the saviour of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her, to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife as the two and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Right. There's a few things I think for us to get into there, but the first thing that jumps out at me is the theme of unity has been a consistent theme since the start of this book. Paul has been talking in an earlier chapter about unity between the Jews and the Gentiles. He's been talking about achieving different ways to achieve unity, um, humility and, and various attitudes and ways to approach other people. Here, his emphasis is turned a little bit more towards the unity. There's two, la- two different stories of unity being told here at once. One is the unity between Christ and the church, uniting together in some way. And then the other, obviously, is the unity between a husband and a wife uniting together. And in both, the theme of unity is absolutely consistent with the emphasis that's been presented through the whole book so far. Um, I guess taking that observation suggests that any attempt to imply here that this is a story about submission and power and, in particular, any kind of imbalance of power, can't be a consistent reading of what this passage is saying because it's talking about achieving unity in the same way that we've met in other in other chapters leading up to here. So the thing that jumps straight out to me is just how sort of simplistic and reductive this passage is. So we do a lot of explaining about it. You hear you know, people trying to compare, um, you know, well, wives have to, are asked to submit in all things, 
but husbands are asked to love their wives across the chest. So, so it kind of works out even. I've heard that sort of explanation. <laughs> uh, I don't, I'm not convinced as that explanation being a good one, but I think what's interesting is it's just, it's very, generic's not the word I want. It's sort of, it's hyperbole, it's, but it's reductive in the sense, so you get to this verse, which really jumped out to me this time. And it's first verse, 28 and 29. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. Well, that's quite nice. I like that sentiment. But, verse 29, no one hates his own body, but feeds and cares, cares for it just as Christ cares for the church. Now, this is a pretty simplistic statement mm. because it's very easy to poke a hole in the whole argument right there and say, actually, there's plenty of people we know in our society body dysmorphia, people hating their own bodies, um, people having eating disorders because they, they don't like their own bodies, the, um, the huge industry around fitness, yeah. wellness, plastic surgery, all these things that are not always, sometimes those are totally legitimate things, um, but sometimes they, they are genuinely fed as well by body hatred. We know in our culture that... Um, particularly teenage girls and boys are incredibly vulnerable to body hatred because of societal beauty standards and how careful we as parents and adults mm. uh, have to be about how we talk about our own bodies and the kind of media that our kids are looking at. And so that's a, that's a big sort of aside to look at if we're going to say, oh, this is the rule for all time, Paul's drawing a pretty broad sketch here and if it's so, I don't think it's a perfect statement once and for all time. Easily explains everybody's scenario. I had the same thought uh, there in in verse twenty nine. <laughs> I mean, even even the the connection that's made. No one hates his own body, but feeds or cares for it. Feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. Even that is not at all a clear logical statement to me, because there are plenty of people who do feed their body but don't feed their body because of a lack of hatred of their body. <laughs> so, so you're right, it's simply, and actually, as you say that, it's fascinating, because I made the same observation in our previous episode, uh, where we were discussing the first half of this chapter. There were statements made like, um, we, we've spent a bit of time um, discussing verse 5, you can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. Um, it's, it's, on the one hand, you can understand it as a statement, but on the other hand, everyone has elements of, of greediness and, and impurity in them. And so it, it clearly is, seems to me that it's clearly painting this kind of extreme. It's, it's painting, um, the first half of this chapter was painting this extreme between the um, doing what pleases God and the doing things that are an idolatry of self-importance. And clearly in reality, there's going to be every individual life is going to have, there's going to be tensions that exist between these things. But in Ephesians 5, it's painting a very clear and stark divide in order to be able to sort of call attention most dramatically to, to what's being talked about. Mm. It, it's almost as if the same sort of thing is being continued in the passage that we've just read. I think where Paul lands that of saying in verse 30, and we are members of his body, this, this, this argument towards unity it's almost he's gotten, he's tried to make this statement of, you know, submit to one another, don't try to be in charge of one another, live in, live in, live in unity. He goes off on this. And for, the, for this group, it means this. For this group, it means that. 
because uh, we're all a member of one body. It's almost like he's gone on this circle yeah. and he's circled back to the point he wants to make. And it's been sort of the, the argument wears quite thin as that circle comes around. <laughs> um, and I mean, we can, we could sit here all day poking holes in the argument, but I think the, the point being, it's you gotta be really careful using quite reductive and simplistic statements mm. as, as generic rules of behavior and life removed from the wider context here of unity and living mm. at peace with each other. I think that's unhelpful. And we can all think of scenarios where pulling an instruction to one group over another group out of this chapter could be incredibly harmful and quite dangerous. Well, I was actually really pleased to, there was a passage in the lesson this week um, that really jumped straight in on one of the, I think, historically unfortunately, common abuses of this passage of the Bible. Um, the lesson jumped in and specifically calls out that um, the, the husband is, is only the, the head of the wife, quoting from verse 23, um, in the presumption of a loving, caring marriage, not a dysfunctional one. Um, and the, the, lesson, the lesson says this verse should not be interpreted to allow any form of domestic abuse. And fascinatingly, invokes a quote from Ellen White, who's writing from a culture not as historically removed from us as the Bible, but still a culture quite, quite removed from us. Um, and the passage from Ellen White that is quoted says, if the husband is a coarse, rough, boisterous, egotistical, harsh, and overbearing man, let him never utter the word that the husband is the head of the wife and that she must submit to him in everything. For he is not the Lord. He is not even the husband in the true sense of the term. I added the word even for emphasis there, but I, I was really uh, pleased to see that level of kind of, it's not even nuance really, but that level of um, engagement with this passage. It is clearly a passage that cannot be used to justify that sort of abusive or, or like um, power distorted relationship. Indeed, any such application of it would fall foul of the first half of this chapter where it called out the immoral and the greedy person. <laughs> so. I think, yeah, I think you've got to be careful, uh, uh, not you, but I think the lesson would have to be pretty careful if they're going to sort of invoke Ellen White in a situation that supported a power distorted relationship. Because if you read anything about James and Ellen White's relationship, you know, it was quite charged um, and she was not a submissive, mm. quiet wife. Um, that they didn't have an entirely smooth relationship where she did what he told her to do. That there was some power struggles between them and, and disagreements that became quite public. So trying to invoke a reading of this as saying, well, yes, wives should always just be quiet and submit in all things, gets tricky if you're in a church tradition whose founders didn't yeah. live like that. And specifically, I mean, she was living in an era where it would have been culturally much more normal and expected um, for the wife to be more submissive. So, or, and even to the point of being essentially legally required for the yeah, wife to be submissive. Yeah. So that what I'm saying is that makes her her story all the more dramatic, more outstanding, I suppose, mm. in the context of discussing the issues here, in, in issues of submission, so to speak. Because yes. essentially this passage is so often... I mean, it opens, verse 21, submit to one another out of reference for Christ. I was going to say this passage is discussed in terms of submission. It's so interesting to find the, to see the reason as being out of reverence for Christ. Um, certainly, 
that's a that's a really different justification than most people I think have have assumed when they've tried to discuss from this passage issues of submission. I think what I said before I'd love to elaborate on what I said earlier when I said you know I've heard lots of explanations well you know wives just have to submit to their husbands in all things but you know men have to love their wives <laughs> and it always feels a bit funny when people try to argue that because if you start saying it back to them what they're saying it, it doesn't land it ring quite true but I think this is really important to think about historically because what Paul is telling wives is not innovative at all he's not giving them a requirement that is new or is unique to the Christian relationship what he is saying is he's he's bringing sort of a, a spiritual dimension to a thing that they were already legally required, mm. morally required, ethically required, expected to do. So, and that's its own complicated thing that we could unpack. Um, like later on, Paul saying, if you're a slave, serve your master as if you serve Christ. That's a very complicated yeah. command. This, spiritualizing this is, is complicated and that's not what I'm, where I'm trying to go. I'm trying to say that this is... He's not telling them something that's unusual that you're supposed to submit to your husband. What he is saying that's unusual is that husbands were supposed to love their wives. That is quite radical in a Roman context, uh, in a Greek context, and even you know, in, in any ancient mm. culture context, husbands being required as part of their religious service to Christ to love their wives and care for them as Christ loved the church and giving him up his life for them. Mm. So that is, a, that is quite radical because of what was considered legal, ethical and moral in mm. history. Even in Western history, in the very, very recent past, it was completely legal to beat your wife. Yeah. It was completely legal. As soon as a wife was married, she lost all rights to her property. That became the, became the sole property of the husband's. Yeah. Uh, marital rape as a concept didn't exist. So a woman lost all control over her own body, mm. over her own property, over her assets, over, over her name. She became a thing. But then, so Paul saying wives submit to your husbands is just, is not even saying anything yeah. in that context. Saying husbands, you must love your wives as Christ loved the church, giving your life up for her to make her holy and clean and loving her body as if it was your own, remembering, of course, they lose control of their body when they get married. That is quite, in that culture, revolutionary. What's complicated is our marriages in 21st century Australia are not ancient marriages. Yeah. They don't conform to ancient ethics or ancient legal, legal frameworks or ancient moral understandings. What was considered absolutely appropriate is now considered by everybody, including people in the church, including the lesson, to be abusive. Yeah, yeah. Totally, and totally appropriate to, to um, physically discipline a disobedient wife yeah. 300 <laughs> years ago. You were, that, were, that was your duty as a, as a husband. Yeah. Now... It's not only inappropriate, now; it's illegal. It's totally illegal. Yeah. <laughs> it's immoral. It's, it's not appropriate. So my question is, if... Our marriages look different. Mm. What, what is revolutionary? Asking someone to do something more uh, loving and more caring than is considered 
even on the reference page of normal? Yeah. Would, would submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ be in a modern relationship? And so I think one of the ways to understand this passage is not say, well, we must replicate a first century marriage. Well, what does this attitude towards mm. how we treat each other speak to us in our relationship? And I think that gives you a different angle on accessing this passage. Yeah, I mean, it does. In, in fact, what you're asking is a better version of a question that was sort of posed, I think, by the lesson, um, musing on critiquing this passage as being reflective of an outdated, out, outmoded um, sort of model of marriage sort of what would you say? Well, I mean, you've given a very clear articulation, I think, of some of the ways in which the, the attitudes of the first listeners to this passage were vastly different in many ways to our attitude. I think, I mean, for example, the um, one phrase that's in my vocabulary recently based on a, a few podcasts that I was listening to is the, is the vocabulary of financial coercion which is something that can be a really subtle form of relationship abuse that can occur really naturally in, in our, um, I guess, modern picture of marriage. You don't have to go that far back. You don't even have to go many generations and women weren't allowed to hold bank accounts in their own name. So, so <laughs> I mean, the whole, the whole idea of describing it as financial coercion is only a recent framework of even thinking through mm. what... Uh, submission, what love, what striving for unity and equality might even look like. Um, yeah, I think, I think that's really fascinating. I, what, is, what is remarkable is the way that Paul here is using the observed social reality of marriages to try and remind people of realities about Christ's relationship with the church. So then that raises an interesting question. How does as history progresses and our social ideas of marriage change and develop, what does that do to inform our picture of how Christ relates to the church? That, that's, an, that's another interesting question that could be, part, that could be posed here. I'm not sure I have lots of answers. No, and I don't think it's easy to answer that. But it, and I think that's why it's important to ask the question. You've got to sort of, I think you'd have to, re, you have to wrestle with that question yourself, each individual, because... If we say either, well, this passage, it only relates to the people in Ephesus, mm. uh, then it's not important to us. If we just say, oh, this, um, this is okay, we just need to understand that if you to really understand this, you know, women's submission's not even that hard. Uh, that's not that big a deal because women naturally want to do that anyway. And men, you know, naturally want to protect. So Paul's just telling us to be loving and kind like we already want to be and that just makes this passage very tame yeah and i'm not suggesting that's a good one at all um but if we say well what if what paul is saying to husbands here is quite radical what does that say to us and that's a not a simple question to answer mm. and but that frees this up to be a, a passage that provokes us to think and wrestle with that idea ourselves. What, what does unity look like? How do we aim for um, loving each other as we love ourselves? How do, how do we respect each other in a, uh, because of the impetus of reverence for Christ? How does that work in our individual relationships? 
because this is, as we said earlier, a very broad stroke simplistic mm. instruction to an ancient relationship. Each of them would have had to think, how does that, how does that work for me? How do, how do I love my own, my spouse like I love my body? Yeah. They're, they're not questions that are ever going to have one size fits all answers. Um, I'm interested in the, um, I guess the, the, the passage we've read ends with this quote from Genesis. It's fascinating that it's quoting from the pre-fall state in Genesis where the Adam and Eve come together in, in this sort of Edenic marriage um, that is described. And that's, that's where this phrase, the, you know, becoming one flesh sort of is, is first found in the Bible. And it's, um, it's fascinating that Paul, in discussing a kind of picture of marriage relationship in, in his era, is reaching back for the, the pre-fall kind of image. I think that's fascinating. I, I personally find that a really helpful framework whenever we're trying to use biblical discussions of marriage. And we've commented uh, many seasons ago in this podcast how fraught this can be. A biblical model of marriage um, typically for most of the Bible involves definitely polygamy and, and all sorts of other things. Yeah, I don't think you paid a bride price for me. No. Um, so, and so, I, I like that because it's, it's calling back to a pre-curse yeah. state. So a state as calling back to, you know, marriage is a great mystery to become one, as the scriptures say, before everything went wrong, before people were cursed with, with um, dispute between each other, before people were cursed with um, difficulties and, and hard times, I think is a really poetic mm. end, book ending of this, um, this passage. And again, makes it a thing that you've got to ap apply. It's not a thing that is easy to just take off the page and yeah. say, well, that's how I'm supposed to behave. That tells me what I'm supposed to do. Even in its, even its most um, non-controversial reading, even if we said, well, yes, we submit in all things and we love as, love it, I, I must, you must love me as you love yourself, that's not actually giving very many details about how you're no. supposed to do that. Yeah, it's really, it's really not. And the, the other observation here to make about the becoming one flesh, especially, especially quoting that here, Paul quotes that just after he's talked about loving bodies. And, um, and so the becoming one flesh is really becoming one, one, it's very much this unity. And so you can't have real one flesh unity when there still exists significant power imbalances. Mm. That's, that's the observation that I take away from this. No matter how many times you want to wrap this around a story of submission and submissiveness and, and you know, natural gendered roles or whatever you might try and argue, none of those really hold up to the becoming one flesh, that level of unity that's being described. And again, unity seems to be a great theme that's really emerging through here. Um, we're very short on time, but I want to just very briefly, you, before we started recording, you made an interesting comparison with an Old Testament passage that uses imagery of romantic relationship. So I think it, I was just reflecting, I, it was a passing thought that I think it's really funny that lots of people try to use this passage as a very literal set of instruction for how married couples are to behave. Saying, well, a wife, must defer to her husband on every decision because Ephesians 5, uh, 22 says, submit to your husband as to the Lord. So we go from that, you know, the, the A equals B. If Paul said to do it, 
you must do it the same way. This is, what, this is how you behave. So a behavioral sort of instruction and very literal. And I had a little laugh to myself remembering the long-standing interpretation that the Christian churches had of Song of Solomon, which is a book about romantic love. It's quite explicit. In some Jewish traditions, men weren't allowed to read it until they were 30 because it's a very charged book about uh, romantic love between a man and a woman. And historically, in, in, indeed in old Bibles, you will find the chapters headed, he, headed as Christ's love for the church. And it's historically been spiritualized to being not about a real relationship, but only about uh, Christ's love for the church and, and almost like a parable. And so I think it's interesting that we, one way to tame that uh, perhaps too um, erotic a part of the book, uh, the Bible, we, we turn it into a spiritual lesson of, of, of God and the church. And here we do sort of the other way around. We say we can't view this spiritually, despite the fact that Paul is saying, relating this as a relationship of Christ to the church, looking at the relationships of a husband and wife and trying to take a spiritual lesson from that. We say, no, it can't be that. It's got to be really literal. And it's just the sort of way that we approach different parts of the Bible and say, well, one must be a parable and one must be literal. And there doesn't seem to be any real consistency in the ways that the way those rules are applied. Well, thanks for that. I, I really wanted you to share that because I found it a really interesting reflection on the way that we fall into patterns of assuming what has to be the important point. And, and so it's a really helpful reflection. Well, I'm glad that we were able to do uh, this episode in this way. It's, it's an, a special and different episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you do have thoughts on this topic or any of the other topics that we've been discussing this season, remember you can email us at sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. We know that some of you regularly listen. We're very grateful for that. We, we are glad that it's useful. And if it is useful to you and you want to share it, feel very free to share the link with friends and family and acquaintances. And we look forward to you joining us next week.